The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, we are currently in week number two of a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Esther, and it's safe to say, as we take on chapters 3 and 4 today, it's safe to say that this week the plot thickens. Uh, that's an understatement. So uh, last week, if you were here, uh, if you weren't, I-, I would encourage you, go onto our website and uh, download that audio. Make sure you, uh, you, you listen to that sermon. Uh, but last week, we looked at chapters 1 and 2, which, which really serve as an introduction of sorts for the book of Esther. And, and so we were given a glimpse into the life of those living in the Persian Empire. We we met the king, King Ahasuerus, who chose for himself a new queen, Esther, a Jewish woman, a a Jewish woman, though, though the king is unaware of the fact that his new queen is Jewish. And then we met Mordecai. Mordecai was a family member of Esther's and uh, her, her father figure, essentially. And, and, and at the end of chapter 2, we saw Mordecai uncover a plot to assassinate the king. And so he exposed this plot, saved the king's life, though um, he, he wasn't necessarily given credit for that. Not, not verbally uh, yet, at least. Uh, but, but all of these things unfolded in the, in the first two chapters, and yet we're just setting the table. This, uh, as, as packed as it was, this all merely serves as an, in, as an introduction, sets the scene for us this week as we begin to see the main plot line unfold for us. And so it... If every story needs a crisis of some kind, then this week we get ours. And it's a real doozy. It, it really is. And, and so this week we're going to see the, the, the people of God face a crisis. Um, and, and, and so this, this comes to us in chapter 3. So really, in chapters 3 and 4, uh, we're going to see two things. In chapter 3, we're going to see a plot. In chapter 3, we're going to see a plea. Now, a, a, a plot, not, not in the sense of, not in the, like the, in the story arc sense of the word, um, but in an evil scheme kind of way. This is the plot that I'm talking about in, in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're going to see a, a plot be revealed and unfold. Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time in chapter 3 this morning because there's some important context that I want to make sure that we don't miss. That's going to set us up um, almost as an intro 1B uh, for the rest of the sermon. Um, and then that will lead us then to chapter 4 where we have a plea, where, where Mordecai is going to go to Esther and, and plea with her to plea uh, with the king. Now, um, there's a lot of Scripture that we're going to be working through this morning, and just like last week, we're not going to have all two chapters 
of the book of Esther on the screen in front of you. And so this is going to be a little bit different than usual. So I want to encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you, whether that's a, your, your device or whether that's your Bible. We have Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. We're going to be on page 411. That's where chapter 3 of Esther starts. You can pick up one of the paperback copies of the Bible uh, off of the bookshelf in the Geneva house. If you have one of those, we're on page 264, but you're going to want to have a copy of, of that in front of you. And so we've got a lot of work to do today. And so let's, let's, let's dive in. Let's, let's take a look at the plot in chapter 3. Start in verse 1. It says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. And so right away, we're introduced to a new character in our story, in our narrative, and his name is Haman. And we're told that Haman has just been given a big promotion. An interesting detail, especially on the heels of the fact that, remember, Mordecai has just kind of unearthed this this plot against the king's life. And yet, who do we see getting the promotion uh, but Haman. He, he's been promoted to be the king's number two man. And this position brought with it a great deal of respect and honor. Verse 2 says, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning, concerning him. Now, it's, it's interesting that the king has to like pass a law commanding, right? It's interesting that he has to command people to pay homage to his number two. I'm not sure what that's pointing to. Maybe, uh, maybe Haman was uh, not well liked. Um, we're not sure. The, the author doesn't tell us. Um, but we're told that all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now to be clear, we're not talking about bowing down as an act of worship. And so uh, Mordecai isn't like resisting the temptation of idolatry here or, or anything like that. We're talking about uh, an, an act which shows respect for a senior ranking official. And this is an act that Mordecai refuses to participate in. And despite the, the king's command to bow and to pay homage, Mordecai refuses, which understandably draws questions. Right? He, he sticks out like a sore, thrum, sore thumb. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, no one likes a tattletale, and yet here we go, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he let the cat out of the bag. He had told them that he was a Jew. And from here, from here things escalate very, very quickly. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to, 
So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. There's so many questions that need to be answered right now, aren't there? So many questions that are begging to be answered at this point in our narrative. Number one, why did Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? Why? Is this some kind of like toxic masculinity thing unfolding before us here? Is that what's going on here? Maybe he had some kind of like personal beef. Maybe he had history with Haman, something we're not told about. Maybe he knows enough about Haman to know that he's, he's a man who is not worthy of this kind of honor and respect. Maybe he was jealous that Haman got his big promotion. Or was it for some religious reason? And to be honest, like the, the author doesn't clearly tell us here. And, and then there's Haman's response which we are told was fury. Fury. Why did, why did he get so angry? Again, this is maybe another tick uh, under, under the toxic masculinity column. Uh, maybe, maybe Haman was just a, a raging narcissist, a deeply insecure man. Maybe he needed to take some anger management classes. And finally, why did the refusal of one man to bow down to him? One single man. We're told that all the other servants at the gate bowed down. Why does a refusal of one single man to bow down to him lead to a desire to kill not just said man, but all the Jews in the kingdom? Maybe Haman is just a bigot, an anti-Semite. Maybe that's what we have on our hands. But look, we aren't given obvious answers here in the text, are we? We aren't given direct answers to these questions. We don't get a parenthetical that tells us, it gives us insight into the, the minds of, of these two men and their motivations. Having said that, the book of Esther does give us some really helpful hints at what is going on here. And, and, and we find them in the text where, where each of these two characters in our narrative, where each of these two characters is introduced. Let, let's start with Haman, all the way back in, in verse 1 of, of our chapter now, chapter, chapter 3. Do you notice how he was introduced? He was introduced as Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, this gives us critical background about our story here and about these two men. We're told that this isn't just Haman, but this is Haman the Agagite. Now, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And in 1 Samuel 15, hang with me here, King Saul went to battle against Agag and the Amalekites. King Saul, the way back in, in 1 Samuel 15. Now, this wasn't Israel's first run-in with the Amalekites. 
They had a history that went back, that went way back. Israel had a history with the Amalekites that went all the way back to the book of Exodus. You see, the Amalekites were the first people that the Israelites met after they were led out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And what did the Amalekites do? They attacked. They attacked God's people just after they had, they had been redeemed out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Now, ultimately, Israel defeated the Amalekites, and, and the Lord said something really interesting to Moses back in, in Exodus 17. The Lord told Moses that he would be at war with Amalek from generation to generation until he would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Until he would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so the Lord promises Moses a, a conflict, a struggle with the Amalekites that would last from generation to generation until the Amalekites were completely wiped out. Well, that brings us back to 1 Samuel 15. And Saul's battle against Agag, the king of the Amalekites. A battle which was a part of a, of a war, remember, that, that has been spanning generations. Well, Saul won the battle. But we read this. 1 Samuel 15.9 says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now, before the battle, why this is significant is before the, the battle with King Agag and the Amalekites, the Lord had given very specific instructions to King Saul. And the instructions were this, that they were to destroy the Amalekites completely. There were to be no survivors, including, including their livestock. And so Saul wins the battle, but what does he do? He, he disobeys the Lord. He leaves survivors. In fact, it's not, it's not Saul that kills King Agag, but Samuel who has to kill the king. And they take all the best for themselves, all the best livestock, all the best animals. And look, the, the fallout would be wide-reaching. Again, Samuel would kill King Agag. The Lord would reject Saul as king over his people. And now we have Haman, the Agagite, filled with fury and a desire to destroy the Jews throughout the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, what, what we have unfolding before us goes all the way back to King Saul and an act of disobedience. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. And then there's Mordecai. Mordecai was introduced last week in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, as Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, Son of Kish, 
a Benjaminite. Mordecai, we see, is he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Do, do you know who else was a Benjaminite? King Saul. King Saul was a Benjaminite. Not only that, but do you know who King Saul's father was? Kish. Kish. So in a sense, the book of Esther is resetting this age-old conflict between the people of God and the Gentile nation of, uh, or, and, and the Gentile Amalekites. And I think that this gives us insight into what might be going on in the hearts and the minds of these two men. Why did Mordecai refuse to bow to Haman? Well, we aren't told explicitly, but there's a strong chance that it had something to do with this. And why did the actions of one man cause Haman to seethe with fury at all Jews in the Persian Empire? Was it racism? Was it anti-Semitism? Oh, it goes so much deeper than that. So much deeper than a a mere hatred for an ethnic group of of Jews. Haman's desire to destroy the Jews has everything to do with their identity as a chosen people of God. As a chosen people of Yahweh. This is what fuels his rage and his hatred for God's people. Ultimately, I I think we could say it's, it's a hatred for God himself. And in so many ways, this is a hatred that dates back even before the first run-in between Israel and the Amalekites after Exodus. We could trace this hatred all the way back to Cain's murder of his brother Abel. We could go even further. We could trace this all the way back to the fall in the garden when the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And look, not, not only can we trace Haman's hatred for the people of God all the way back to the garden of Eden, but Look, I, I think that we can trace it all the way forward to the present day. As we see in Esther, the Persian Empire was hostile to Mordecai and the people of God. And look, it's not much different today. Jesus made this clear when he told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hate, hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates Christians today for the same reason that the the Amalekites hated the Jews back in 1 Samuel 15, back in Exodus 17. Because they are the called out, set apart, chosen people of God. The chosen people of Yahweh. Now look, in the United States, we tend to live fairly comfortable lives. And so you might be tempted to say, look, it's nothing, it's nothing today like it was back then. But as one commentator, Christopher Ash, explains, he, he says this, that the burden of this chapter, chapter 3, is to press home to the people of God 
that there is in the world an underlying hatred for God that will express itself in hostility to his people. And what is more, we need to hear that this hatred for God's people is much worse than we typically imagine. Our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church will tell us this is true. And we need to listen to them as we listen to Esther 3. And so we, we live fairly comfortable lives in the United States. We enjoy certain religious freedoms and protections under the law. I mean, I just, in the, the pastoral prayer, I just acknowledge the fact that our church is, is full of, of all kinds of wonderful churches. And, and look, the, the persecution that you and I may face in the coming week most likely will be relatively mild. But don't let any of this lull you to sleep or convince you that as followers of Jesus that, that, that we aren't hated by the world. You see, if, if we were of the world, then the world would give us a big hug and would love us at it as its own. But while we were once of the world, we are no longer of the world. We belong to Jesus now. We belong to Christ. And the world hated him, and therefore, because we bear his name and his image, he, the world hates us as well. And look, you, you don't believe me? Um, when you're in public, or on social media, or around your coworkers and non-Christian friends, what if you stopped using vague spiritual language to talk about God? In church, in your gospel community, a prayer, and what if you started to invoke the name of Christ explicitly? I wonder what you would discover about what the world thinks about Christians and about Jesus. What if you didn't just embrace biblical values quietly, but made it known that your values are the result of your allegiance to Jesus as God, Lord, and Savior? What, what if you revealed your motivation there? And what if, you, what if you stopped arguing about politics and started telling people that the wages of their sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? I think if we started to do these things more often, I think if we outed ourselves more explicitly, I think if we started invoking the name of Jesus Christ our Lord in the company of of those who are far from him, who don't belong to him. Look, I'm, I'm not talking about being like abrasive for the sake of being abrasive. I'm not talking about not being loving. But I am talking about identifying with the man. I, I think that it wouldn't take us long before we began to see evidence of the spiritual war that rages on in the world around us. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about it when he, he said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, this, this war that Paul wrote about, it's, it's an ancient war. And it dates all the way back to the days of Esther. In fact, it dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Well, Haman's hatred propels him into action. 
verse 7, we, we read that in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. That is, they, they, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And, and what happens here is that, that Haman chooses the date for the destruction of the Jews in the empire based upon the casting of lots, essentially a, a, a roll of the dice. And then, we're not going to read this part this morning, but Haman has to convince the king to go along with his plan. Haman's number two. He's not the number one. Now he needs to get the approval of the number one. And and he does this using a series of deception and lies and half-truths to paint the Jews as the antagonist, as this imminent danger and threat, not only to the king, but to the entire kingdom, to the entire empire. And as it turns out, Haman's a good salesman because the king buys his pitch. And this is what we read in verse 10. Again, chapter 3, so the king took his signet ring from his hand. And, and look, all the authority that goes with it. And he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And so what does a king do? He gives Haman his signet ring, his signature. He gives him his credit card, and he says, knock yourself out. It's all yours. Spare no expense. I wonder if you noticed. Did you notice the, did you notice that the title that, that Haman carried in, this, in these few verses? I think it was uh, verse 10. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, is now introduced as Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Later in chapter 8, he'll be identified simply as Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And then in chapter 9, he'll become Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews. Well, with this new title for Haman, this this new title brings us to the final few verses of chapter 3. And and this is, without a doubt, the, the darkest point in the entire book of Esther. When Haman's decree is issued to everyone in the Persian Empire, to everyone in the known world. I'm going to read through this, but... As I do, pay attention to the language that is used here because it, it reveals the deep and comprehensive nature of Haman's hatred for the people of God. You can hear a lot of absolute language. And, and not only that, but, but notice that it, it invites, not only invites, but rather commands the citizens of Persia to participate in the complete and absolute annihilation of God's people. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. 
It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. What language? All Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, one bloody day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to, again, all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman, of course, they sat down and they had a drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So confusion and, and chaos breaks out. Why? Destroy, kill, annihilate, plunder. All in one day. This is the plan. Now, interestingly, this edict is officially sent out, we're told, on the 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the first month is the day before the Passover. The day before the Passover. What I think is happening here is that Haman's decree, this edict that is sent out here in chapter 3, it's, it's almost a reversal of what happened to God's people in the Exodus. Remember, Israel was set free from slavery on the heels of the tenth and final plague. The plague of the firstborn, or the, the firstborn, every firstborn in Egypt, unless you had the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, was, was struck down. And on their way out of town, God's people plundered the Egyptians. And now the Persians are set to destroy and to plunder God's people, finishing what the Amalekites started in Exodus chapter 17. And look, for, for the Jews, there is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to run to. There is nowhere to hide. The, the, the Persian Empire at this time basically included the, the entire known world. It's an almost certain death sentence. And once again, just like in the book of Exodus, God's people are in need of a deliverer. That's the plot. That brings us now to chapter 4, where we see a plea. Chapter 4 opens with the, the Jews' response to Haman's decree. We read that when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's, uh, of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. 
But it wasn't just Mordecai, was it? In every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Brothers and sisters, picture this. The day before Passover is when this was all set into motion. And that leads not to worship and to celebration, but to mourning and grief and crying and fasting and lamenting. Now in verse 4, we, we see Esther's response, which is noticeably different. We should take note of this. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Now, distressed and everything that we read about in verses 1 through 4, those are two very different responses, aren't they? And what's more, we're told that she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. You see, while Mordecai and the Jews mourn and lament and weep and fast, Esther, who is still kind of in her empire cocoon, she is deeply distressed. Now, I, I think the reason that she is deeply distressed here is that she's deeply distressed because of the mourning and the lament of the Jews in the empire. You see, as we'll see here in a few moments, she hasn't yet been told about the details of the decree. So why does, what, what does she do? She, she sends Mordecai a change of clothes, sends him a new outfit. Hopefully this will cheer you up, right? She's, she's kind of trying to, unknowingly, she's, she's glossing over the issue at hand. But Mordecai refuses, and I think that Esther, the wheels start to turn, and she, she begins to realize something's, something's going on here. And, and so she sends one of her eunuchs that had been assigned to her, and she uses this eunuch as a go-between between her and Mordecai. And what Mordecai does is he reveals to her all of Haman's plans for the Jews in the empire, he even gives her a written copy of the decree so that she can read the fine print for herself. And then he, he reveals to her this, that, that Esther is the only hope that God's people have left. Why is this? Because she is the only one who could possibly have the king's ear. Esther is the only one who can plead the Jews' case before King Ahasuerus. You see, God's people are in need of a deliverer. God's people are in need of a mediator. And Esther is the only one who could possibly fill that role. There's only one problem. As Esther tells Mordecai, you can't just waltz into the king's court and demand his attention. In fact, to do so and to not be acknowledged by the king and given permission to, uh, to speak, to, to do so would to, be, to sign your own death sentence you would surely be put to death. And to make matters worse, Esther reveals to Mordecai that she hasn't been called upon by her husband. Remember, he has his own harem of, of concubines. She hasn't been called on by her husband in the past 30 days. And so he hasn't been showing a lot of interest in her to begin with. And so the chances that she would be granted an audience are low. 
So that brings us to to some of the most important verses in the entire book of Esther. Kaylee read them for us um, a while ago. I'm going to read them again here. Chapter 4, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The phrase that is probably the most infamous phrase, the most popular, famous phrase from this book. Who knows whether you whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not drink or eat for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, Christopher Ash, I've quoted him once. He does a really good job of capturing what's happening here. And I just, I want to, it's a long quote, but I want to quote him at length because he captures it really well, and I think it's succinctly as it could be. Ash says this, what Mordecai now says is deduced not from visible circumstances, but from covenant promises. Why does he say relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place? It's weird because Haman has a lot of confidence in the face of of, of sure death and destruction and annihilation. And and a doubter in, in Haman. Not, I think, Ash says, because he has had some vision from heaven to tell him this for such Obviously, supernatural interventions are alien to the book of Esther. Remember, there's nothing supernatural happening here that we can see. There's no mention of God. There's no um, outright prayer or anything of, of that nature. But rather, and more simply, because he knows that God made a covenant with Abraham, reiterated it to Isaac and Jacob, and then the children of Israel. This covenant promise that Abraham's people will be more numerous than the sand on the seashore, the stars and the sky. The whole world will be blessed through Abraham. If that covenant promise is true, and Mordecai believes that it is, then it is not possible for all the Jews in the empire, which again, included pretty much all the Jews in the world, because this empire included most of the known world, it is not possible for all the Jews in the empire to be annihilated. Mordecai's statement is not wishful thinking, but straightforward faith in the, co- in, in the God of covenant promise. In Galatians 3.8, the Apostle Paul says when God gave this promise of worldwide blessing to Abraham, he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Listen to this. In restating the implications of this government, in, in saying, look, or, uh, um, of this covenant rather, in, in saying to Esther, look, 
If not you, God will raise up some other Jew to save his people. We may therefore say that Mordecai preaches the gospel to Esther. And I think you will notice, especially as we read on from this point in Esther, there's something that changes for Esther in this moment. I think you could argue that Esther believed the gospel that Mordecai preached to her. And therefore is never the same again. You see, she has embraced her proper identity as one of God's chosen people. She's identified herself as being among those who are the recipients of the covenant promises of God. And perhaps even she could be used by this God as an instrument of his mercy, as a a mediator of his covenant promises at, at such a time as this. Fourteen times in the book of Esther, Esther is referred to as Queen Esther. Thirteen of those fourteen times happen after this moment. And notice, at the end of chapter four, who's the one giving the orders now? It's Queen Esther. You see, Esther is a story of of a woman who trusts the promises of a faithful God. And then in light of these promises, takes bold and courageous steps of faith. She steps in to mediate for her people and to plead with the king for their salvation at the risk of her very life. And in so doing, brothers and sisters, don't miss this, Esther points us to an even greater mediator than her. What a tragedy it would be if we walked away merely saying to ourselves, man, that Esther, Queen Esther, an incredible woman of faith, that is true. That is true. Esther is an incredible woman of faith as she steps in to mediate for her people, but but she points us to a much better and even greater mediator than her, Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior, our Deliverer, our Mediator, who not only risked his life, but gave his life in order that we might be saved from death, from death in order that we might be saved from annihilation, a, a sure death sentence, a, a just death sentence due to us for our sin. We were under condemnation, just like God's people in Esther's day. We were under a sentence of death for our sin, eternal destruction, was staring us in the face. The Apostle Paul, we, we looked at this just, just a, a, a few weeks ago. And Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Esther points us to our deliverer. He points us, she points us to our intercessor. She points us to our mediator. And you know what? You know what he's doing? Even now as we sit here, he continues to intercede. He continues to mediate on your behalf and on mine. And so while sure death and destruction, while tragedy and peril may have been staring us in the face because of our sin, we've now been reconciled to the Father. 
peace has been made between us and our God. And look, now, you and I, in light of these wonderful truths, in light of these promises, these, these gospel promises that are, are true for us in Christ, you and I, like Esther, we can leave from here today taking bold steps of faith. We can utter such nonsense as, if I perish, I perish. Why? Because we know that Jesus intercedes for us, that he mediates for us, and that like God's people in Esther's day, that he will preserve us. Let's pray. Father, uh, what, what an incredible story we have unfolding before us. And just at its face value, Lord, this is an incredible story. And then there's the story behind the story. Your story, the, the story of your pursuit of a people to be your treasured possession. Your pursuit of a people, even when they weren't pursuing you. Your story of a, your, your preservation of these people. Preservation in the, in the face of danger, even in the face of their own sin. And so, Lord, we, we read this story as those who have been swept up into the story. And Lord, we, we thank you for the ways in which you worked in and through Esther to preserve your people. We, we stand today as beneficiaries of her bold steps of faith. And Lord, we, we, we thank you that Esther, a mediator for her people, points us to Jesus the mediator. Lord, we thank you for the peace and the grace and the love and the forgiveness that is ours in him. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.